0: This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer or mobile device instantly stream by Netflix to save you time, money, and hassle. Free 30-day trial now at netflix.com slash APM.
1: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
2: I come from a Jewish family, and um, I love old vaudevillian humor, and one of my favorite old chestnuts is uh, there's a group of old Jewish women sitting in a restaurant. And the waiter comes up to them and he says, good
3: evening, ladies. Is anything all right?
4: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Zach
1: Schwartz of the band Rogue Wave that'll help break the ice. Nice. Their new album Nightingale Floors came out
4: this week. Later, we'll speak with actor Ellen Page, one of the stars of the new movie, The East. Also coming up, Tony-nominated actress Laura Osnes shares her favorite Cinderella stories. We learn the weirdest fruits in the world, and National Book Award-winning author Colin McCann reads from his new book, Transatlantic. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Huge stars like A-Rod may face significant suspensions in a massive doping
5: scandal.
0: The NBA Finals begin as the Miami Heat host the San Antonio Spurs.
5: The program allows the government to secretly collect millions of U.S. citizens' telephone records through Verizon.
4: Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is senior writer at the Atlantic Wire. That's the Atlantic Magazine's news and culture blog. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
6: I'm going to be talking about A a woman who got busted for workman's comp fraud because uh, investigators saw her on an episode of Price Is Right. (laughs) Doing what was she lifting the car? She went all the way to the (laughs) showcase, to the to the big wheel that gets you onto the showcase showdown, and she lifted her arms up and pulled the wheel hard oh. and they investigated this was like in 2009 and this this thing just happened she just pled guilty um, and they saw that she could lift her arms which she said she couldn't oh. which is why oh, no. she couldn't All work right. at the post office anymore
1: conceivably she could have come on down like that was okay she could walk
6: right yeah but just it, but it was- no 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 lifting or yeah of, of the arms and certainly not like pulling like a big heavy <laughs> Well, I don't actually know how heavy that wheel is. Yeah, I mean, she's working at
4: the post office. We're talking about big sacks of mail, right? Like, I mean, there is a difference between pulling a wheel and big sacks of mail.
6: True. Though there is another wrinkle to the story. Apparently, they found on Facebook photos of her zip lining with her husband on a carnival cruise. (laughs) (laughs) So she was really blatant about it. Wait, did
1: she win that trip from the Price is (laughs) Right, though?
6: That is a good question. I Dude, do not perfect. know.
1: So so if you have a workman's comp claim, go on Wheel of Fortune. That's what you're saying.
6: Right, yeah. Wheel of Fortune, easy. You just, Someone else you just, turns yeah, the letters. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And that, that wheel, it's, it's low. You're not lifting your arms. But Price is Right is a real physical game. <laughs> and
4: you should also apparently just stay the heck off social networking.
6: Exactly. Uh, the article that I read about this, the, an investigator said that social media is a new tool for them to, like, catch these people in fraud. So, I mean, really, if you're going to do the elaborate scheme, you're going to have to avoid... Maybe Vine would be okay. I don't know if people (laughs) are hip to that yet. Or you can do an old
1: one like MySpace or something where no one's looking. Right, Friendster. You're safe on Friendster. (laughs) Stay away from Facebook. All right, Richard Lawson, thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Uh, Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a volcano that erupts
4: booze. Whoa. Yum. Is
1: that still a disaster? I Maybe. I'd volunteer to help. Anyway, first the history. This week back in 1932, the New York Yankees'
4: Tony Lazzari performed a baseball miracle. And he still didn't get no respect. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
0: Tony Lazeri did the near impossible, just not near impossible enough. It was June 3rd, 1932, and the Yankees were playing the Philadelphia Athletics. When it was over, Lazeri had managed one of the rarest feats in baseball. He hit a single, a double, a triple, and a home run, in that order. It's called a natural cycle. Now, the chance of a batter hitting a natural cycle in an average game is around a thousandth of a percent. There have been fewer natural cycles than even so-called perfect games. And Lazari not only beat those odds, but his climactic homer, was a grand slam. A star-making performance, right? Except one problem. Lazeri had a teammate, a fellow named Lou Gehrig, who played a pretty good game that day, too. Lou swatted four home runs, the first batter to do so in modern Major League history. A miraculous feat, but not actually as miraculous as Lazari's. There have been 16 four-homer games since compared to just 13 natural cycles. And Lazeri's still the only player who ever topped off a cycle with a grand slam. Even so, back in 32, Lou was hailed as the star of the game. Not surprisingly, Lazeri seemed to harbor some resentment toward his more famous teammates. Remembering Gehrig and another Yankee, Babe Ruth, he once said, quote, Gehrig thought Ruth was a big mouth, and Ruth thought Gehrig was cheap, They were both right.
1: So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the cocktail to go along with it. I am joined by Dan Greenbaum, owner and bar manager of The Beagle, which is in Manhattan, not far from where Tony Lazzari hit his natural cycle. So Dan, you heard the history lesson. What cocktail did it inspire you to make?
2: I found a drink in the Savoy Cocktail Book from 1930. This drink's called the Cooperstown
1: named after the oh, where the Hall of Fame is.
2: Cooperstown, New York, definitely. Sounds
1: good. So what's what's in the drink?
2: So it's basically a variation on the martini. So in
1: my opinion, a martini is gin and a little bit of vermouth. Can there really be a variation?
2: Would agree with you on that. But this is just another tweak on that by putting a little mint in.
1: Mint signals to me that we are leaving martini territory, and we're in, like, caparina territory.
2: Yes, usually I would say yes, but this is a weird application of mint. We're just going to throw it in the mixing glass here and and bruise it to kind of release the oils without getting that full-on mint flavor. And what are you going to do with it? So I'm going to put in half an ounce of dry vermouth, Okay. And then a Blanc Vermouth. And then I'll just bruise the mint a little bit. That
1: Muddler looks like a little baseball bat.
2: It does look like a little, kind of Louisville Slugger. And then I'm gonna take a little gin. I like a a stronger gin here. This is a London Dry that I'm using.
1: And now what are you gonna do?
2: I'm just gonna crack the ice and stir this cocktail. I pulled out a Nick and Nora glass, which is a coupe, depending on what you wanna call it.
1: It looks clear. I see a little bit, I see some mint in there. It looks a little bit like, you know, the grass on a baseball field. Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to try it. Wow. It's funny this is called a Cooperstown. It feels more like a drink you would drink at a polo ground than a baseball right. stadium. This is kind of what a Yankees fan would drink as opposed to maybe a Mets fan.
2: Uh, I don't know about that. We, we would. I'm, I am a Yankees fan. I, I would have to say that when it comes to baseball nowadays, we all like beer.
1: But but if the Yankees really like a beer, they'll just buy the distillery. <laughs>
2: the Mets, Mets aren't doing so bad either. You know, maybe if they didn't just throw money into a, a Ponzi scheme too, then they'd be doing a little better too.
1: Enrico, we should note yeah. that despite being overshadowed by Lou Gehrig, Tony Lazeri was still a pretty respected member of the Yankees' legendary batting lineup called Murderer's Row. Of
4: course. He's legit. Yeah, probably the only Murderer's Row in which you would want to be included. Right. Much.
1: I don't want to be exonerated. <laughs> Guilty of being amazing. Lock him up. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll find the recipe for the Cooperstown at our
4: website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actress Laura Osnes. She currently
1: plays Cinderella in the Broadway production of that Rodgers and Hammerstein classic. She recently won a Drama Desk Award for her performance. And this Sunday, she'll find out if she wins a Tony. Here she is to tell us about the show and her list.
7: Hi, I'm Laura Osnes, and I think one of the reasons why Cinderella is so popular is because she embodies this rags-to-riches story, and I think a lot of people can kind of relate to that. So here's my list of Cinderella stories. The very first one that came to my mind is the story of Aladdin finding the magic lamp and getting three wishes from the genie and marrying the rich princess in the end. So he definitely goes from rags-to-riches. I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels
3: roll. Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. It's
0: barbaric, but hey, it's home.
7: I ended up doing a production of Aladdin in Minnesota. I was in the ensemble and I understudied Jasmine. And the two leads actually collided one day on accident on stage and they had to stop the show and go to the hospital. And I went on as Jasmine with my friend Nathan at the time and I ended up marrying Nate. Oh, like Arabian days That's my real-life Disney love story. <laughs> we both understudied the leads and we got to go on together and our first kiss was on stage as Aladdin and Jasmine riding the, the magic carpet, the whole deal. And we've been happily married for six years. A fool
0: off his guard Could fall and fall hard Out there on the doom Another
7: Cinderella story I thought of is The Tale of My Fair Lady, which is a dream role of mine. I think it would be really fun to play. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have begged for more. I could have spread my
0: wings and done a thousand things.
7: My Fair Lady is about a cockney flower seller. She meets a rich man, Henry Higgins, who teaches her how to speak and be a lady. May
4: I introduce Miss Eliza Doolittle?
2: My dear Miss Doolittle, how kind of you to
0: let me come. Delighted, my dear.
2: Will it rain, do you think? The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. <laughs> How awfully funny. <laughs> what is wrong with that young man? I bet I got it right. Smashing.
7: I see a lot of parallels between the kind of makeover element between Cinderella and My Fair Lady, from literally being cinder-covered and dirt-covered to made-up, sparkles, tiara, or, you know, My Fair Lady, a, a huge hat and a beautiful dress. It's that transformation. A third example I can think of, kind of a real life example of where a relatively unknown person became known on television, and that's the story of Catherine McPhee, who was a runner-up in American Idol years ago, and just finished starring in Smash, and has become a household name across the nation, and is such a huge star.
8: Does she make it to the finale?
7: I remember watching Catherine McPhee on American Idol. She sang Over the Rainbow, and um, I've played Dorothy before, so I was a huge fan of that song, and I actually called in and voted for her because I loved her voice so much.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're the judge. Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Catherine
7: McPhee. (laughs) I often get asked in interviews about the parallel between a Cinderella story and my own story. I also did a reality show in 2007 that cast me in a Broadway show, and it's, again, becoming known from relatively unknown Little Girl in Minnesota. Someday I'll wish upon a star
2: And wake up where the clowns are
1: The guest list from Lara Osnes, she's up for a Tony this weekend for her role in Broadway's Cinderella.
4: You know, and Brendan, I just noticed, Tony, Oscar, mm-hmm. these are mm-hmm. big awards have really plain names.
1: That's that... totally true. And then yeah. there's Grammy. No one even remembers her name, right?
4: <laughs> it's more affectionate than Grandma, though, at least. That's true. Better All than right. Mom Mom. I guess. <laughs> All right, people coming up, find out where actor Ellen Page met this Motley crew.
9: Batman would be with Peter Pan, with, like, uh, Luke Skywalker.
4: When The Dinner Party Download continues...
0: This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. Streamed now by Netflix, a great value. Netflix Streaming has lots of movie and television options, including past seasons of Project Runway, Mad Men, and Arrested Development. Watch them using Netflix Instant Streaming and find thousands of other TV series and movies during your free 30-day trial at Netflix.com.
1: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan.
4: I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we find out what a stuffy is and then eat one. Yum. And in a few minutes, author Colin McCann reads from his new novel, Transatlantic. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes. And this week, it's
1: actor Ellen Page. She's best known as the star of the indie hit Juno, mm. for which she earned an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. She also starred in the movies Inception, Super, and X-Men First Class. Currently, she's in the East, in which she plays Izzy, a member of an ecologically-minded anarchist collective that attacks major corporations. When I met with her earlier this week, I asked if she had any trepidation about playing such a political and provocative character.
9: That made me extremely interested. I mean, I was interested for a variety of reasons. To get a script that's not just beautifully written, (laughs) but is also relentlessly suspenseful and... Moving and then to have it be about a lot of issues and topics that I personally am interested in and think about, of course, makes me want to jump into a project like this. Is it
1: true you actually studied permaculture design at an eco village in, in Eugene, yes, Oregon? That is true.
9: That is true. What? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know that that's not the same as being in an eco terrorist cell, but uh, mm-hmm. t- can you, what, what, what was that experience like?
9: Um, it was one of the most profound experiences of, of my life. You know, I just finished a movie and I had had a busy sort of year or two with a lot of transition and really desired to have something sort of separate from this world that I work in uh, yeah. just for myself. And so I went to Oregon to this place called Las, Vall- Las Valley and studied permaculture design and eco-village development. And you know, it it's obviously very different because in the East, obviously they're very intense eco activists who believe in eye for an eye justice and are yeah. obviously um, have violent intentions. <laughs> so it's obviously extremely different. <laughs> but the idea of living in an intentional community, um, living in a way that removes waste and and encourages living in a cyclical way with the earth, allowed for connection to um doing this project.
1: I didn't mean to suggest that you were you were a terrorist, but I did, it just seemed <laughs> like that this topic is of interest to you. You you also voiced a documentary about colony collapse with bees. So it seems like the environment is an ongoing concern of yours.
9: Yeah, I mean I'm always shocked <laughs> like when it's n- not a concern of someone or the fact that it could be called, you know, a partisan issue. It makes no sense to me. You make your living by poisoning this creek and other rivers and lakes. And you separate yourselves in your gated communities with golf courses from the world you're destroying, from the families who cannot afford to move away from this creek, or from the cancer their children are dying of. You create, for a living, toxic chemicals that will outlive us all and feel nothing.
1: You as an actor can deliver dialogue either a mile a minute or full of feeling and it sounds so natural. So I'm wondering from the from the time you first read the script, what strategies do you use to make the words feel right to you?
9: Huh. Y- you know, firstly I need to connect with something, just like in the core, if that makes sense. Like there needs to be some sort of part of me that is able to honestly connect with another character without, you know, kind of removing all judgment whatsoever.
8: Mm-hmm. And
9: once i can start feeling the story and the character like enter me in this way then yeah. it's a matter of sculpting around that does that make sense so then like juno gets yeah. has a certain way of like a certain enunciation and a way of speaking and then you know izzy has a very different voice from that and so yes. it sort of goes it starts at the core and then i just try and create something around that i guess
1: when you see a, a juicy scene I remember reading in class, and I would wait to raise my hand until I got a big, there was a big chunk, you know, because I wanted to (laughs) read the most. And, you know, you are now a very successful actor. Do you still get excited when you're like, oh, man, today I I get to do my, you know, I get to do a couple pages?
9: (laughs) That's such a funny thing. That's a good question. (laughs) You know, I think what's funny is, yeah, the opportunity to be a part of something that's well-written and to be a part of a well-written scene that feels... Mm. Unique and is deeply moving, and you know, deeply moves me as a person. So, then of course, I want to try and tackle that as an actor. And then you just hope you do the writing justice and can create something that will give you the reader reading it you know, will allow the audience to feel that. And obviously that's what we're trying to do when we make art, make a movie, you know, you wanna sort of earn those moments. Um, so of course, that's so exciting. But sometimes it's so deceitful. It's those it's those quiet little scenes that you least mm-hmm. expect are the ones that sometimes really shake you and take you by surprise, the amount that's underneath it.
1: So we, we have a couple of questions we ask each of our guests. And mm-hmm. the first one is what question do you are you tired of being asked?
9: Well, it changes. Okay. So it used to be, how much are you like Juno?
1: Because uh-huh. I
9: would just <laughs> constantly get asked that. And right now, strangely, it's become uh, about Halle Berry's pregnancy, <laughs> because oh. I just shot an X Men movie. There's no, there's no way that I am going to comment on anyone's. Yeah. Um, so that lately has been the funny one.
1: So our second question is, tell us something we don't know and it can be about you or about the world at large.
9: Um. Well, maybe my dear, dear love of action figures as a child. And all kinds of different. It was <laughs> never like a coherent sort of singular narrative of action figures. You know, Batman would be with Peter Pan. Whoa. Who, who would be with Luke Skywalker. And <laughs> I would just create like incredibly elaborate Intense stories, mm. and um, spent a lot of time playing by myself as a child, and so. But there's a t- part of me that thinks back to that sort of intense and em- like emotional storytelling <laughs> that I feel like it had to have some sort of some sort of effect in the work I do. One one would think maybe
1: that explains something about your, or maybe it explains something about your career. You do a lot of independent film, but then you also do. X-Men.
9: Does mm-hmm.
1: part of that come from just your love, maybe, of action figures as a child?
9: It's funny because I never really got into comic books necessarily much, but I love the X-Men movies, and I first played Kitty Pride when I was like 18. You know, that was a tremendous opportunity, like, to play a character like that and a young woman who's like that strong, and mm-hmm. um, and to be able to go from that kind of filmmaking to a smaller set is is, I love that. I love having that sort of diversity and each environments present different challenges and, and
1: probably different catering services.
9: Strangely enough, you know, sometimes on those little sets you'll have like really stellar catering and... Huh. I just fear
1: they bring an entire like strip mall of restaurants to the set of <laughs> X-Men.
9: Not quite, not quite.
1: Enrico, I have to admit, I've always been jealous of movie people getting all their meals catered, you know? (laughs) I mean, that is the dream. I think so. Plus naps.
4: (laughs) Although, actually, public radio and catering services are not mutually exclusive.
1: No, no, I'm not talking about taking a catering gig for extra cash.
4: Oh. I'm talking about getting catering. Then you have a point. Ladies and gentlemen, that reminds me. Actually, we're late to work a bar mitzvah. But if you want to learn more about Ellen, head to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Oops, forgot the sterno. And now, time to eavesdrop. Colin McCann's novel Let the Great World Spin won the National Book Award in 2009. His new book, Transatlantic, comes out this week it weaves together three different tales of overseas travel. Today, we overhear him read a passage.
8: Hi, my name's Colin McCann. I'm the author of Transatlantic, and I'm going to read to you today from a chapter called Parabellum. Savis passum Parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. It's actually set in 1998 with Senator George Mitchell um, on his way from New York to Northern Ireland to negotiate the great peace that everyone has wanted for 800 years. He emerges from the bright elevator, moves through the marble lobby towards the revolving door, 64 years old, slender, greying, a slight strain of yesterday's tennis in his body. He hears his name from several angles. It is as if the revolving door has caught the words and begun to let them spin. Mr. Mitchell, Senator, George, Sir. The black town car sits idling outside the apartment building. A relief floods through him. No press, no photographers. An umbrella is held aloft for him and the car door is opened. Thank you, Ramon. There is always a moment of dread that there might be someone waiting inside the car. Some news, some bombing no surrender. He slips into the rear seat, lays his head against the cool leather. He has been the subject of many newspaper columns recently. His beautiful young wife, his new child, the peace process. It stuns him to think that he can still be copy after so many years. Captured on camera, pulled through the electronic mill, he'd like a long sweep of silence, just to sit here in this seat and close his eyes, allow himself a brief snooze. The usual, Senator? Almost 200 flights over the past three years. New York to London, London to Belfast, Belfast to Dublin, Dublin to DC, DC to New York. He lives out his life in two bodies, two wardrobes, two rooms, two clocks. JFK, yes, thank you, Ramon. The car shifts minutely underneath him, out onto Broadway. A familiar sudden loss, a sadness, the sorrow of a closed vehicle moving away. Just a moment, Ramon, he says. Sir, I'll be right back. The 19th floor. Heather stands in their son's bedroom, hunched over the changing table, hair pulled high to her neck. She does not hear him enter. He remains at the door, watching as she pulls together the Velcro of the diaper. She leans down and kisses their son's stomach, tickling him, a giggle from the baby. The senator remains at the bedroom door until she senses him standing behind her. He kisses her, then his son. He pinches the boy playfully on the toes, the roll of soft skin at his fingers. Heather walks him back to the elevator, takes the flap end of his suit jacket, draws him close the elevator cables pitch their mourn. What she worries most of all is that he will become the flesh at the end of an assassin's bullet. When she was with him in Northern Ireland last July, it chilled Heather to see wheeled mirrors being slid in under the car before they drove off. George said it was just a formality, nothing for her to worry about. He had an air about him, a mid-century dignity that dismissed most danger. She holds her foot in the elevator door for a moment longer than she should. But then it closes and he is gone. And all she can hear is the electronic pulleys as he descends through the heart of the building. He will be home in two weeks by Easter Sunday. He has made a promise. She hears the faint ting of the elevator bell below.
4: Author Colin McCann reading from his new novel, Transatlantic. It was edited for time. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course
1: where we talk about our favorite part of any dinner party, the food.
4: And Brendan, June is here. Mm -hmm. For folks near the water, that would mean that it's fishing season. Very nice. (laughs) For the rest of us, it's roast ice cubes over the air conditioning season. (laughs) It's ice mellows Yeah But I chose to celebrate by venturing out of the house And away from the air conditioner And over to Connie and Ted's That is the seafood restaurant opened this week By L.A. chef Michael Rusty. Not Connie or Ted Neither (laughs) Uh, He earned two Michelin stars for his more upscale place Providence And I specifically wanted to talk to him about a dish on the menu Which I had never heard of But which has the best name ever Stuffies
10: Sounds like a bad guy in Popeye or okay. something. Or what? maybe a mobster's middle name. Pro- yeah, that's okay. a good one. Ricky Stuffy Bomboloni or something. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a collo- colloquialism. God, that's a tough word. It's a, coll- a colloquialism, and, you know, it's something you find all up and down the coast of New England. And there are probably as many variations on stuffies as there are clams in the sea. It's just every restaurant has their own sort of little version of it. For those who don't know, what's in the thing? What's it, what is it basically? So a stuffy is usually a quahog, which is a giant clam. That com- is that how it's pronounced? I've, I've heard it quahog. I've heard- quahog. Quahog, quahog. My family always pronounced it quahog. So quahogs, a, it's, a, you know, it's a sea clam. They're plentiful. And uh, it's a big clam, but it's not the kind of clam you want to like shuck and eat on a half shell, raw or anything like that, or even steam it. Uh, it's something that's got to be cooked, and usually you chop it up and then you cook it because it's so rubbery, I guess. Because it's a big clam, it's a little tougher, and they can—they do have beautiful flavor, but they are big, angry clams. Uh, do they yell? They—they well—they—they they don't yell, but they do—they put up an incredible fight for their <laughs> lives when you try to shuck them. We have a little trick where we put them in the freezer for a little while, probably about an hour before we, before we try to shuck them. Because if you don't, you could, you could wind up in an argument with a, with a quahog for a good hour you know, before they finally relent. So a quahog, you know, or a stuffy rather, usually what they are is you know, some sort of, there's always onion, there's always garlic. You, well, I shouldn't say always, but there should be onion and garlic. Then you're going to have some sort of pork product most of the time. Could be bacon, could be pancetta, could be some sort of sausage. We're using linguiça. Then we put red peppers in there. We put parsley, we put olive oil, and then we put breadcrumbs we make from fresh baked bread. And this all goes on in the shell? Do you bake this in the shell? Right, you make this mixture of the onion and garlic and sausage and some herbs, saute all of those things together, chop the clam, add the clam, and then you sort of bind the whole thing together with bread. So it's, you know, a stuffing of sorts, you know. You could even throw it in a turkey if you wanted to, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be too terribly out of place. It would be delicious, I promise you. So then, once we've got that mixture together, then we stuff it back in the clam, you sort of like mound it up inside the clam. And some people will even like put the top shell back on, wrap the thing in aluminum foil and bake it in the oven. I, I don't like to do that because I like, you know, when we bake them in the oven and then we finish them in the broiler and they get a nice crispy texture from the bread. And I really like that. I think it adds a lot to the dish. So we, ba- we do them on the half shell, essentially. Is this uh, something that you had in your youth? I mean, when did you first encounter these things? Yeah, stuffies are something. I mean, I've, I had them all the time in many, many places up and down, you know, the coast of New England. And it's something I, you know, I remember fondly. I'm very nostalgic for. And I think a lot of Angelinos are nostalgic for that kind of food, too. You know, there, there's so many transplants here in Los Angeles from New England. And I think that's a fun part about dishes like this is that, everyone has their ideal version of what it should be and hopefully ours measures up. I was going to say, is there some fear that you're going to just cheese some people off as like, this
4: isn't a stuffy, you call this some sort of highfalutin thing? Yeah.
10: Well, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always a risk of that, you know, when you have a dish that has a past and a lineage, hopefully it'll come across and people will say, you know what, it might not be the one that I remember from Iggy's in Galilee, Rhode Island, but it's, it's a damn good version. Fair enough. Can I, can I have some of these things? We're fresh out. No, of course. We got a couple waiting for you so so these are the stuff he's being made you see we have them so all the clams are on the half shell and they
4: look really beautiful it's almost like a stuffed mushroom except the, the instead of a mushroom it's a clam shell
10: a clam, that's right so we have a couple these these right here have been in the oven for a few minutes already and so they should be warm all the way through. so now i'm just going to put just a little bit of extra virgin olive oil on the top oh man and then we have a, a broiler that's already preheated and we just want to like sort of toast them and get that crispy uh, texture on the exterior and then they'll be ready to eat and all this breadcrumbs, this all comes from bread that we make in-house. Everything, everything here at Connie and Ted's is made in-house, except Would for ketchup. <laughs> Every time I've ever gone to a restaurant that makes their own ketchup, I find myself saying, don't you have any Heinz? There's a reason why the Heinz family are billionaires, yeah. you know? Um, this is beautiful. Wow, and it just like, so that didn't take long at all. No, not at all. It's a super hot broiler. This thing is crazy. And is this it? Just a fork? Yeah, I think you only need a fork. You yeah, I don't, careful. this is the not finger really food. Really no, it's not finger food. Well, you could, you could pick it up and just throw it in your face, but it'd be really hot. Let me get you a fork.
4: All right. So here we go. Oh, man. That is fantastic. Sweeter than I thought, because it's linguiça meat, right?
10: Yeah, exactly. The clams give a tremendous amount of sweetness as well. And then there's lots of extra virgin olive oil in there. so it's all... Oh, and it's some spice, too. What's the spice coming from? That's coming from the linguiça. And there's a little chili flake in there as well.
4: Yeah. This is beautiful. I did not grow up in New England, but it's making me feel nostalgic for it anyway. Well, good. And Brendan, Michael also told me that the classic stuffy recipe was influenced by Italian and Portuguese fishermen. They're hmm. they probably the ones that added the pork in there, right? That sounds and, delicious. Yes. And of course the dish was also named after a fisherman who just always had the flu. Oh.
1: You know yeah. That? Stuffy. Yeah. Our goal, stuffy. Old,
4: old stuffy. <laughs> Loved eating quahogs with his hook The Gordon Fisherman's best friend. That's, yeah. He also, that's where fisherman's friend comes from. Folks, Uh coming up we learn about Miracle Berries and Snake Fruits and the former Chief Counsel of the FAA tells us how to behave on airplanes.
1: When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party
4: Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune called "Faces" from Jonathan Ratto. Not a new tune from Rod Stewart's old band Faces. That's right. The song involves way less spiky mullet hair. Too bad. Also coming, also coming up, documentarian Jung Chang tells us why he prefers fruits to vegetables: broccoli or uh, cauliflower
3: it doesn't really get you turned on. Steamy. But first, it's time
4: for our etiquette segment.
1: Yes. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Mark Gerchik. Mark was chief counsel for the Federal Aviation Administration and remains an airline consultant. His new book, Full Upright and Locked Position, comes out this week. It's a revealing look at why air travel today is the way it is. And by that, you know, we mean hassle-free, mm. blissful, tons of personal space. Fun. No. And air, <laughs> air travel, this is an etiquette nightmare. And on that note, Mark, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Was the name Abandon All Hope Ye Who Enter Here taken (laughs) for your book? Because (laughs) I think that might have been more apt. Air travel's the worst. What Can you tell us a few of the things that made... Air travel so bad. Well
5: the industry confronted tremendous fuel cost increases in about two thousand eight. The price rose ten times in a year. Wow. And then of course we you know, we had the tragedy in nine eleven, um which mm. changed the whole zeitgeist of, of the air travel experience. Right. So we're kind of reaching a new normal now, which people are sort of adapting to the Unhappy, well, but, you know, well, somewhat adapting to Sort the of yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, my legs uh, I can't chop my legs off at the knee Which is apparently what they want me to do to fit into these seats Yeah, but you are supposed to be making some accommodations But the traveler is challenged today to make some serious accommodations to the new industry Which is an industry that's making some money But not making any love among uh, passengers <laughs> That's for sure When you showed up at the
4: administration, what most surprised you?
5: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, actually, I was what actually impressed me. One is these people actually really care about airline safety. The, there is a real commitment. It does feel
1: safe, it's just uncomfortable.
5: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's in a nutshell where we're going. It is safe and it is uncomfortable. You know, if I could have rewritten the title, I would have put "Safe but Uncomfortable." Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, maybe the paperback.
4: I do like the full upright and lock position. By the way, it almost sounds like Full Metal Jacket, a movie
5: about a war. Well, yeah. <laughs> the language of uh, of the of, of aviation is amazing. We always uh, say two words when we can say one, like full upright. What's you know partial upright, right? Or yeah. take your personal belongings with you. Well, don't <laughs> yeah. take the other guy's belongings. You know. <laughs> So, Mark,
1: is there any good news? Is it going to get, I mean, will it get more comfortable or is this just? Yeah,
5: actually it is. You know, I love the kiosk. Basically, you never have to talk to anybody to check into a flight anymore. You don't have to uh, stand in that line. Oh, that's so, right. And stuff like that. On the front end, you're sort of saying, before you get inside the plane at least. Exactly. Yeah. And the planes are going to get better too, I have to say. There is uh, the new uh, Boeing 787 and the Airbus equivalent are going to be more comfortable. They're going to give you a, a more humidity, which I hate that dry feeling. You feel like when you know, kind of your nose is going to crack off, and so, but, and then uh, you're going to have more pressure in the airplane, so it's going to feel like you're flying at six thousand feet, sort of like a Denver high rise, instead of at eight thousand feet. But
1: I don't hear any, you know, it doesn't sound like our knees or our elbows are going right. To get Definitely not. Those soon. knees
5: <laughs> are going to get more and more crunched. Basically, oh. like the, the whole the whole economics of air travel is to cram as many human beings into that tube as you possibly can. And in fact, uh, the laboratories are going to be getting smaller too, so they can add another <laughs> row of seats. Well,
1: when you're, when you're so close to other humans, that's when etiquette becomes important. Indeed. That's why we have you here. Let's start with a question that came from Christina. She sent it to us via Facebook. Yes. And
5: she asks, to whom does the armrest belong? The issue needs to be settled <laughs> once and for all. Well, okay. The answer is simple. The armrest belongs to the middle seat. The, mm. the person in the middle seat has generally authority over the, over the armrest. On the other hand, if the person in the middle seat seeds either armrest, then it goes to the person who has the strongest bladder because <laughs> if you get up, you've seated it yourself. So that's the rule. Oh I that's s- the
1: thing. Seating could just mean like uh, reclining your chair or going into your bag as soon as you leave absolutely. your elbow leaves.
5: Not for an instant. Try drinking that soda water with your elbow remaining fixed yeah. to the armrest. <laughs> Claiming your space. It's territorial, absolutely.
4: But I guess the idea is that the middle person gets it because the middle person's Seat is the least comfortable. Exactly. All right, exactly. Christina, there you go. Uh, here's something from Lindsay in Durham, North Carolina. And Lindsay writes What do you do if the person next to you refuses to turn their phone off when the door closes before takeoff? Say nothing, give them the stink eye, or rat them out.
1: <laughs> oh, this is a great question, Lindsay. It, yeah. yeah. Brendan, well, I know,
5: cares a lot about this. Oh, okay. Have you been arrested, Brendan? <laughs> no, no. No,
1: No, it bothers me to no end when people leave their phones on because uh, I don't okay. like takeoff. I'm frightened, and I just want everyone to obey the pilot.
5: That's fair enough. And, and, you know, Lindsay, you probably don't need to worry about this. The one thing that the flight attendants are looking for like hawks mm-hmm. is the telephone. Really? Uh, if anybody's on the phone... That is a big deal. So it's likely that they will catch that person without you giving them the stink eye. Or ratting them out. Or ratting them out. But um, if they talk back to the flight attendants, even better, because then you're starting to get in the area of a federal crime, <laughs> <called> interfering <laughs> with a uh, flight crew, right? But yeah. but I've seen this happen a lot.
1: They, people put it face down. It's like uh, they're like grade schoolers hiding something from the teacher. So yeah. are you? should you say something?
5: Yeah, I think you can ask them to turn it off, because if they're, if they're willing to uh, disobey the you know the direct order of the flight attendant and the pilot, they're probably going to deny that they've done it anyway, when they, and you're going to have a great involved conversation with a flight attendant yourself and the individual. So that probably isn't going to work out. I just would add mm-hmm. though, for, to if you are really concerned about this, the FAA is now looking at this whole issue about the cell phones, and a lot of observers think that that prohibition is going to go away. So great. I wouldn't worry too much about that. One. So I can look forward to people talking next to me on the phone. That'll you know, oh, that's the issue. <laughs> so, some European and Asian airlines uh, do allow cell phone use virgin atlantic recently has allowed it i think they're only allowing six people at a time to talk on the cell phone and they say only <laughs> right only in quote extraordinary circumstances I now, yeah we're talking about flights from new york to london with a lot of financial folks on it now, yeah you know what's an extraordinary circumstance exactly. a 30 point drop in the dow or what, sure. what they're I mean.
4: like my nanny's late <laughs> Is, it, is there any time where we're allowed to rat out somebody, though? I mean, it does seem like. Well, if the guys,
5: if somebody's bending over their shoe and trying to light it, I would do I was going to say, if their <laughs>
1: sneaker's on fire,
5: say something. That's a sure sign <laughs> they're out. All right, Lindsay, there you go. Uh,
1: so this next question comes from Allie in Westlake Village, California. Allie writes I'm 6'4 and sometimes relegated to economy class. Is there any right to not have the
5: passenger directly in front? reclined his seat into me. Well, you know, the word right is a little bit loaded there. I mean, I I don't, there's not a right. No, my view is that each person has their own personal space granted by the airline. Yeah, they paid for it. Pretty Mm. tiny little space. You all, you know, you have the right to your own, you know, the little knob above your head where the air comes in. It's called a gasper. Truly, it's called a (laughs) gasper. (laughs) You have a right to your own gasper. Nobody touches your gasper. Don't touch my gasper, people. Exactly. So it's, now look, you can turn around and say, look, please, can you possibly uh, not recline your seat fully? And very often, people Mm. are pretty nice about it. But when it comes to rights, now, you got to be careful here, too, because there have been incidents where this issue of the seat recline has caused major upset on airplanes. Yeah, fights. Yeah, Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a flight flying nonstop to Ghana, and (laughs) one guy had reclined into the face of another guy. An altercation ensued and ended up with the pilot saying, the heck with it, turned around and got rid of his fuel and landed back at Dulles. And I, I think even they, they may have even sent a couple of F-16s up there. So be careful about <laughs> oh, those flights over seat oh recline. Oh, my gosh. So there's but, your answer. Let the guy recline.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And Mark Gerchik, thank you so much for telling us how to behave and avoid causing a major incident in the skies above America. Thank you. Mark Gurchick.
1: His new book is called Full Upright and Locked Position, Not So Comfortable Truths About Air Travel Today. And if you plan on reading it on a plane, you might want to download the ebook because
4: you won't have enough room to open the hardcover version. That is sad but true. And folks, if you want to hear some sad truths about how you ought to behave, send us etiquette questions, why don't you, uh, via our Facebook page. That is facebook.com slash dinner party download. Or
1: via our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at my cubicle. It's 213. 213- 621-3554. Please don't call from the play.
4: And now it's time for Chattering Class, where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. The topic today is fruit and the people who love it. And by love, I mean they are completely obsessed. Our teacher is Yong Chang. He directed the documentary Fruit Hunters. You can watch it online now. And Young, welcome.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for having
4: me. Your film, for those who haven't seen it, follows people who travel to very far reaches of the world to taste bizarre and exotic fruits, or they dedicate their lives to preserving or growing or collecting rare fruits. How did you fall into that world? Are you an addict yourself?
3: You know, I didn't start out as an addict. I started out as a, you know, a lover of certain types of fruit, I'm of a Chinese origin uh, background, so I uh, I used to go to Taiwan a lot in the summers, and we'd indulge in some weird kind of fruit, uh, <laughs> like the durian fruit, for example. Sure, v-
4: known to be very smelly, but very buttery inside.
3: The, the, right, the stinkiest fruit in the world. They say that it's like, uh, it tastes like eating your favorite ice cream while sitting on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> then, as I started to... To realize that there were actual fruit-obsessed individuals, fruit hunters out there, and even organizations like the Rare Fruit Council International, yeah, uh, that I started to realize, you know, this is a, this is serious business for some people. And uh, and then when you start filming it, and people are showing you some of these uh, incredible, almost like sculptural
4: yeah. species, they look like they're from a different world. Some of them, uh,
3: yeah, and you really get the sense that you want to forget about filming it and become more of a fruit hunter. And I think that obsession kind of took over as I was making the movie.
4: Well, let me ask, why why fruit, though? Why not vegetables, which also can be in bizarre forms, or grains or something? What is the allure of fruit to these people and to you?
3: Yeah, I think the allure is when you think about, let's say, for example, broccoli or uh, cauliflower, it doesn't really get you turned on. And the beauty of fruit is that they've been created to seduce us. That is the purpose of fruit, solely to make us want to eat it.
4: And I'm assuming the reason why biologically that, I guess, plants would want, if we can attribute want to plants, the reason why they want <laughs> us to eat their fruit is so that we'll pass it through our systems and the seeds get out into the world.
3: Right, on the most basic uh, level, yes, that was the initial int- intention of, of fruit, was so that we could spread their seed. And uh, <laughs> oh, <man.
6: laughs>
4: Uh, Sorry, it just sounds very sexual because, it is. I, in a way, it it really is. Um, early in the film, you show what looks like a mango auction. Was it only mangoes? It's a, it's an auction of some, fruit auction of some kind.
3: That is a uh, very special annual charity auction that happens at the. Fairchild Botanic Garden in Miami every year they have a mango festival one of the highlights is this amazing
4: mango uh, auction well it looks like at one point a mango goes for seven hundred and fifty dollars is that for one mango that is for a uh, a handful of uh, a mangoes
3: not a lot but they're so rare and so special that people will bid uh, top dollar for something like this and you know I was there spent some time there people you know, it's, it's sort of unbelievable. I've tried mangoes that taste like creme brulee, p- <laughs> pina colada, lemon meringue pie. I kid you not, it's it's a very, you know, it was an eye-opening experience to know there's so much more out there.
4: Well, that's, this film is packed with shots of of weird fruit, you know, non-mango <laughs> fruit, and delightful little origin tales of various fruits. You mind if we run through a sampler of a few of these? But yeah, let's do it. So the first thing is the miracle berry. That just blew my mind. Probably one of the most
3: fascinating and most unusual fruits out there. It, it originally uh, comes from Cameroon. You eat it, and it doesn't taste like much. But when you combine it with food that is very sour, for example, lemons, there's a special trait in the, in the miracle fruit that will convert that flavor into an extreme, almost saccharine sweet. So lemons will taste like lemonade, and, and <sighs> strawberries will be the sweetest strawberry you've ever eaten. When we were traveling with the film, we came up with this great concoction. When you have, for example, a mojito... Oh, yeah. You can have this mojito without the sugar, but eat a miracle fruit beforehand. It'll be the best mojito you'll ever have. <laughs> really? It tricks the taste buds in your tongue to register the whatever is sour or bitter as, as sweet. Let's go on to the discovery of the Macintosh apple. That is a love story. The story of uh, John Macintosh, who was uh, an American who uh, left uh, the U.S. during the Civil War in search of his wife, who had left beforehand, And uh, near Cornwall, Ontario. It turned out his wife had passed away, and looking up he saw this lone soul apple in a tree uh, where his wife was buried. And that apple became known as the Macintosh apple.
4: And I think of a Macintosh apple as being a little bittersweet, so it's kind yeah. of perfect. Yeah. Um, one guy in the film mentions in passing that fruits run the gamut from wonderful to scary. <laughs> T- tell me about a scary fruit.
3: Yeah, I. you <laughs> know,
4: <laughs> there's a lot of scary fruit out
3: there, and especially in Borneo. We discovered a fruit that uh, that is called the snake fruit. It's also yeah. called selak, S-E-L-A-K, and uh, it kind of looks like a onion, uh, but okay. coated in a leathery skin <laughs> perfect uh, and it, that that skin resembles rept, reptilian you know sheath of reptilian skin. Isn't this thing and, supposed
4: to be tempting? That doesn't sound like something. I'm going to go, "Hey, let's put that in my mouth yeah, exactly it's It's not tempting for everyone but uh,
3: but then when you slide this skin off, there's this uh, these cloves in the interior, and they are crispy and delicious. Wow. So it's scary at first, but then there's some sort of allure, you know. I think there is something about fruit being like that, where you you kind of uh, sometimes you're you're in shock and awe at its appearance, mm. but uh, upon tasting it, it's uh, it can be transcendental, like, like
4: love itself. <laughs> scary, like, like, yet like love, worth sticking around for somehow. <laughs> Mr. Chang, thank you so much for uh, teaching us today.
3: Thanks so much. It's been great speaking with you.
1: Filmmaker Jung Chang, you can stream his new documentary, The Fruit Hunters, online. We've got a link at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
4: And Brendan, speaking of scary there, Jung also told me about his favorite weird fruit. Mm-hmm. He said it looks like eyeballs growing out of a tree's bark. That's true. I wow. wonder
1: what else is in those Miracle Berry mojitos. It's <laughs> a little
4: something acidic. All right, folks, that's The Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, director Sofia Coppola talks about her new movie, The Bling Ring. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party Download.
1: Our interns are Davy Kim, Brittany Martin, and James Delahousie. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks also to Chris Clark, Carlos Asensio, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace.
4: And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
1: Jonathan Rado's band, Foxygen, became a necessity of life for many music heads this year. I'll wait for you to get that. <laughs> Soon, he'll be releasing his first solo album. It's called Law and Order, and here's the first single, Bases.
4: Bon appetit. <laughs>
1: And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening to the Dinner Party Download.
4: Alright. Nice job. Whoa,
1: what's that you got there?
4: Uh, it's a miracle fruit. Hey, watch
1: it. You just squirted some on my paycheck. I'm sorry.
4: Whoa! Whoa.
1: My paycheck just quadrupled in size. That
4: is amazing. I'm gonna put it on my watch. It's a Rolex! Whoa! Wow. I wonder what it tastes like. Sweet. Wait, why do I sound like Kai Rizdal?
1: Okay. Hey, where are you going?
4: I'm gonna rub some on my car.